All right, well, good evening. Uh, most of you have probably been to a core class at some point. If not, welcome to your first core class. Sometimes what we'll do is we'll take a particular topic and break it up over the course of like three or four weeks. You've come to a class where we just put the whole thing together all into one night, turn on the fire hydrant, and just point it in your direction. So if it feels like that, that's sort of intended. Uh, in some ways, even as I was putting this together, I just kind of realized that I don't think I've ever, even when I was in seminary, I never heard someone talk about this stuff for this length of time. So like, you're, you're getting the real deal here when we're gonna be talking about creation and angels and demons and spiritual warfare. Uh, fun topic, uh, not an easy topic, uh, but we're gonna hit it. So if you feel like you're having a hard time keeping up, this will be on video, this will be on podcast, and you've got all the material right in front of you. So that way I don't feel guilty if I go too fast. So that's for my sake but you benefit from it. So core classes, when someone asks me, why do we do core classes? This is how Matt Friend would describe it. And he's about as artistic as I am. When you look at those doors on the way out, there's three circles. Do you remember what's in those three circles? Worship, belong, and serve. So if someone were to ask me as a pastor here at Bible Center, how do you grow spiritually at Bible Center? The answer would be is you worship, you belong, and you serve. You spend a little bit of time in each one of those circles. So core classes kind of function like this. If I turn these circles into trees, just pretend with me, that's a tree. And then that's a tree, and this is a tree, and there's the beautiful ground. And then these clouds floated in. And these clouds were called core classes. The way they function is they pretty much water all the trees. So our desire is just to immerse our worship, belong, and serve with God's word. Whatever God says, we want as God's people to know it inside and out. We want it to affect the way we worship. We want it to affect the way we belong and live life together. We want to affect the way that we use the gifts and skills and resources that God's given us to serve his church and to grow his church. So that's how it functions. Uh, on the way in, you noticed a book. Uh, it's a book by a guy named Greg Allison. It should pop up on your screen. If you haven't purchased that book yet, no pressure, but I think you'll really benefit from it. Some systematic theology books are like this big. That one, though it's still a pretty good sized book, is a great book that kind of summarizes doctrines into like sizable portions. So that's why we picked that book. Uh, we would love for you to have it and to be reading it alongside of these classes. So for 2019, our goal is to dig deep into biblical doctrine. Our goal for 2019 is to dig deep into biblical doctrine. So we've already done one class on God's word. We did one class on God Almighty. Here is creation, fall, and the next one is Jesus the Messiah, which is coming also here in the spring. And then in the fall, we're going to have a whole bunch of other ones. Uh, the church, the Holy Spirit, salvation, the end time. So it's all coming. So in one year, we're going to knock out all the major doctrines. So that's our goal, and we're going to go for it. So that means some evenings, we're going to hit them all at one time. So tonight, we're kind of hitting a hard subject. We're going to be talking about what God created, both the invisible and the visible. So when we're talking about the invisible, God's word speaks truly, but God's word does not speak exhaustively. The other night, about two or three weeks ago, my wife was driving her car home. Some of you already have heard this story, but the car starts smoking. That's never a good thing. Uh, and my wife 
kind of kept driving it for a period of time, which is also not a good thing if your car is smoking. So eventually it got to where it stopped working. So she had to pull off to the side of the road. And if you know me very well, you'll know that my dad's a mechanic and that all the skills that he has, none of those got passed on to me. I am terrible with engines, but my wife calls me, so I go out there with a flashlight and some paper towels. You know, that's, oh, <laughs> that's what I had. So I showed up, it's dark outside, I open up the hood, I take my flashlight, and I shine it in there. Now my wife is there, and she knows I have no idea what I'm looking at. My son's there, he knows I have no idea what I'm looking at. My dog captain is there, he's just staring at me like, what are you doing? Um, this is what I was able to figure out though. There was a lot of liquids all over the engine and in the bottom of the engine. I was pretty certain the liquids that were outside of the engine were supposed to be inside of the engine. That's what I figured out with my flashlight. So when I look at that engine, there's a couple things that I get. I know where the dipsticks are. I know the fluid should be in the engine, but there's lots of things I just don't get. Tonight, as we study what God created in the realm of the invisible, there's gonna be some things that we're gonna know. There's gonna be some things that we understand, but there's also gonna be aspects that are just gonna be a little beyond our reach. So God's word speaks truly, but not exhaustively, but we're to be thankful for what we do know. And on some level, we should be satisfied with what we don't know. There's a reason why God didn't share certain things with us, uh, but it doesn't mean we can't ask some fun questions along the way, and we will. As you study God's creation, as the Bible speaks of God's creation in Psalm 33, 19, 136, 96, 97, when he speaks of creation, what happens almost immediately following that discussion is worship, it's praise. So tonight, the goal isn't to study the creation, it's ultimately to worship the creator. So by looking at what he has made, we tend to stand in awe and be overwhelmed of who he is and what he's like. So even tonight, as we head into our study, and we're going to do a lot of information, we're going to go through a lot of verses, we're going to push pretty hard and pretty fast, I want us to start off the right way. Uh, so we're going to play a video. It's a song by Chris Tomlin, uh, where it talks about our response to God's creation. So if you would, just enjoy it. Let's get our hearts in a worshiping mood, and they'll come back up. We'll pray, and we'll jump in.
if you would, let's pray together for our evening. Father, we come before you, and we stand in awe of who you are, what you've done. By looking at your world, by looking at one another, by seeing what you've made, we are overwhelmed. May our minds grow in wisdom tonight and understanding of who you are and what you've done, and may our hearts just respond with a standing ovation of worship and awe as we stand before you. Uh, even tonight, prepare our hearts. Lord, throughout the day, we've doubted you. We've had times where our faith has struggled and our attitudes, our actions, and our thoughts. We pray that you forgive us of those things. Fill us with your spirit. Use tonight to grow us, to fall more in love with you, and saturate the city with your gospel. In Christ's name, amen. All right, if you'd open up your books, let's go to page three. We're starting with God creates the invisible, page three. We're starting with angels. As we go through, we're not going to look up every single verse because if we did, we'd be here until morning. So some of these verses are just summarized for you. Some of them you're going to have to look up on your own, uh, but they're there for you. What are the, what's the purpose of angels? Why did God create angels? We well, created angels to glorify him by serving God and his purposes, to glorify God by serving God and his purposes. Does that sound familiar at all? It's kind of like why he created you too, right? God created all that he created to glorify himself and to serve him and his purposes. Now, there's a lot of different types of angels, and they all look different, and they seem to show up at different times, and they're doing different things at different moments. The first group I want to talk about are the cherubim. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, this is just a little bit after Adam has fallen and Eve ate the fruit. And at this point, God is driving them out of Eden. He's driving them out of Eden. And then God places between Adam and Eve and the tree of life, cherubim, with flaming swords, so that they cannot return and ever eat from the tree of the fruit of life. Uh, he does that intentionally. And these are beings that I don't think you're going to mess with. Now, obviously, that's not a picture. That's a rendition. Uh, but when the cherubim are described, they're described with some level of power. In Exodus 25, 18, as well as in Hebrews 9, 5, it talks about two cherubim that were fashioned out of gold and placed on each end of the ark, where the mercy seat was on top of the ark, okay, or the atonement cover, and they're facing the ark. In Psalm 18, 10, in Ezekiel 10, 1 through 22, it talks about God actually like riding on the cherubim. In 2 Samuel twenty-two eleven, that's not in your notes, but 2 Samuel twenty-two eleven, David sings, God mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. So he mounted the cherubim and he flew. Now, what did that look like? Was it like riding a horse? Was it like riding a surfboard? I mean, we don't know, but God actually mounted the, cherub the cherubim and he flew. In Ezekiel 10, 1 through 22, uh, if, you ever if you just want to read something that just will blow your mind, Ezekiel chapter 1 will do that for you. It's this vision of angels and wheels, and we don't have a lot of understanding of what all is being talked about there, but within that vision, the cherubim are described. They're described as having mighty wings. In verse 5 of chapter, of chapter 10, it talks about them clapping their wings together, and you could hear it. The cherubim are covered with eyes. They were in the temple, and the glory of God was above the cherubim. 
And they were accompanied by these interesting wheels that were also covered in eyes. And wherever the cherubim would go, these wheels would follow the cherubim, seraphim. In Isaiah 6.2, uh, they're only mentioned by name. Seraphim here had six wings, and they flew above the Lord, hiding their face with two wings, hiding their feet with two wings, flying with the last set of wings, and they were calling out to one another, praising God and declaring out loud over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We don't know a whole lot about seraphim, but it's possible that the reason why they were created and the only thing that they do now, tomorrow, forever, through all of eternity is to simply worship God and to proclaim his holiness out loud to one another, to all who hear. Living creatures. If we go back to Ezekiel, now we're in chapter one. In chapter one, there's also this kind of wild vision. And then there's this group of angels that are described to look a lot like cherubim. In chapter 10, verse 20 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel says this, these, referring to the cherubim, he says, these are the living beings that I saw beneath the God of Israel by Chebar. So I know they were cherubim. So in chapter 10, he references back to chapter one and says, those living creatures that I saw, those are cherubim. So even though they're called living creatures in chapter one and I distinguish them, it looks like they were also cherubim. Now, when they're described here in chapter one of Ezekiel, they have four different faces. Okay, there's like a lion and a bird and a human face. Uh, they're very unique and somewhat confusing angelic beings. Uh, it's difficult to tell in this passage how much of it is like literal and how much of it is sort of figurative. Uh, but as you can see in that image, that's kind of the idea that we were given as we look and read about the cherubim, these living creatures. Revelation chapter 4. Let's go ahead and go there for a second. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. I'll read it for you. It says this, And before the throne there was standing like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature was like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and a fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night... They do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So here, they're called living creatures again. It doesn't say that they're seraphim, but they do the exact same thing that we see the seraphim doing as described in Isaiah 6. So it's possible that the reference point here again is seraphim, but they're called living creatures. So we put those in their own category. Let's go to the next page. So we have different types of angels. We also have highlighted angels throughout Scripture. Certain angels that just seem to get a little bit of attention, a little bit more attention than other angels. One would be Michael, who was called the archangel. In Jude chapter 9, there's this interesting picture that Jude gives us where he's fighting against and discussing and arguing with Satan himself over the body of Moses. It's kind of a weird thing. Why would Satan himself... And Michael the archangel will be arguing over the body of Moses. What happened to the body of Moses? In Deuteronomy 34, 6, it says this, 
And God buried Moses in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows the burial place to this day. So for whatever reason, God decided that no one would know where Moses was buried. But that decision was argued against by Satan himself. Why? We have no idea. We don't know. Perhaps it would have been better from Satan's point of view for everyone to know where he was buried. So that way they would make a shrine and worship the wrong thing, be more excited about Moses than God himself. We don't know. But there's an argument that took place. If you have your Bible with you, go with me to Daniel 10. We're going to be there several times tonight. When it comes to how the spiritual world works, we get a lot from Daniel chapter 10. So contextually here in verse 13, Daniel has been praying for like three weeks. And here is the person or the being that shows up to talk with Daniel. And this is how he describes what's been happening for these last three weeks since Daniel started praying. In verse 13 of chapter 10, it says this, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. That's kind of interesting. So this spiritual being who appears when Daniel started praying, God said, go to Daniel. He was sent to Daniel. But for those three weeks, for 21 days, somehow he was held up by a being who he referenced as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. At the end of the verse, he calls him the kings of Persia. And it seems like the only way he got away was when Michael, the archangel, showed up and basically created a situation where he could escape or move on or finish his task. So we see Michael showing up here to help other angels finish the tasks that God gave them to do. There's not a lot of verses that talk about this kind of stuff. Like, we just have this. So there's a lot of things that we could suppose that could be incorrect, or some things we could suppose that could be correct, but that's what happened. If we go down to verse 21, it says this. He keeps talking to Daniel. He says, however, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is, one, there is no one who stands firmly with me against those forces except Michael, your prince. So he shows up. He starts talking to Daniel. Remember, Daniel is trying to tell the king like what different visions that he's seen, and Daniel's had some visions. And so he's talking to him, and the angel shows up to give him some understanding of what's happened. But he says, there's these forces that are against us, and the only one who's standing with me is Michael, your prince. That's just interesting. So Michael seems to almost be called to be in charge of taking care of God's people, at least the Israelites, I mean, or at least Daniel himself. It's like Michael's been given charge over this. He's been called to stand firm, and he's called your prince to Daniel. Very interesting. So there's actual forces. There's an actual battle. I mean, and we'll, we're going to come back to this chapter and look at it a little bit more, but it's just right beyond the veil of what you and I can see. It seems like there's things going on literally all around us. Like, this is real. This is real. This is really happening. There are forces at battle around us. Some are assigned to different people and things, and, and there's real consequences. 
Daniel prayed for 21 days, but it took 21 days for that angel to come because of that spiritual warfare. There's really things happening around us. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, Michael is mentioned again, and he's called the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. So again, Michael is described as the one who kind of stands guard over the people of Israel. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, it is Michael who fights directly against Satan in the end. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it doesn't say Michael by name, but it references the fact that the archangel will basically, you'll hear his voice and the sound of a trumpet in the return of Christ. So you see him there as well. Gabriel, the messenger, again, another unique role here. He functions as a messenger for God. So we just read in Daniel 10, an angel shows up and discusses and talks with Daniel, but he doesn't name himself. But just a little bit earlier in Daniel chapter 8, verse 16, and Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, Gabriel's the one who shows up to help explain some visions. It's Gabriel who does that. Um, so we see him functioning that way. But Gabriel's not just an Old Testament angel. In the New Testament, is Gabriel who shows up and talks with Zechariah and Mary in preparation for the coming Messiah. So he talks to Zechariah about John the Baptist, and he preps Mary for what's about to happen with this baby that lives inside of her through an immaculate conception through the Holy Spirit. He's the one who delivers and gives that information from God. Let's talk about the nature of angels. Point D, we're on page four still. And we're just going to run through these. One, angels were created. Therefore, they are finite in knowledge and power. There's no such thing as an infinite angel. There's no angel that knows everything. They're finite, like you and I are, but kind of in a different way in terms of knowledge and power. Jesus is considered much better than angels. In Hebrews 1.4, in Hebrews 1.6, angels are to worship Jesus. Okay? What happens sometimes in scriptures? An angel will show up on the scene and man will fall on his face. And the angel will have to say, no, no, that's, go ahead and stand up. You don't need to do that for me because Jesus is greater. Okay? Angels know their place. Angels are called spirits. So God is a spirit. Angels are called spirit, spirits. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, always, at all times. Angels are not that way. Even though they're called spirits, they seem to have a location. Okay? They can't be everywhere at once. We just read that in Daniel 10. One angel got stuck somewhere. Okay? He got stuck. He couldn't proceed because he has, his presence is specific in a particular location. The appearance of angels can be impressive and overwhelming, like I described before. There's a couple verses about that. God did not subject the world to come to angels, but to men. This is really interesting. Catch the second part. Men are described as presently being a little lower than angels, but this appears to be only for a little while. We don't fully know what that means, okay? We don't fully know what that means, um, but for this period of time, we're considered a little lower than angels, but that's not forever. When you and I have your glorified bodies, it sounds like that might change. Jesus, like a man, Jesus, like man, was made for a period of time lower than angels. He's described that way in Hebrews 2.9, not by choice, or by choice, not by nature. He then suffered death and was crowned with glory far, far above the angels. 
Angels have specific assignments to particular nations, churches, or even people. Does that mean you have a guardian angel? Is there, like a, is there an angel floating above each one of you that's charged with taking care of you? Probably not, but maybe so. How's that answer? Okay, like, like we just don't know. But we do see that angels are charged to take care of certain things, to be over certain areas and aspects and people and nations. So maybe, maybe not. But the thing we, sh we should be excited about is even if you don't have a guardian angel, you know you have Jesus, and that's really all that actually matters. So it's okay if you don't, and it's okay if you do, because regardless, you have Jesus. Angels do not marry, according to Matthew twenty-two thirty. So there are no little baby angels. Those little, those Campbell soup kids with the wings and they sh the little Cupid things, like, no. Like, I don't know what angels look like. You don't know what they look like, but they're impressive. They're overwhelming. When man encounters one, they're in awe of them. Have you ever felt that way when you saw a picture of Cupid? Me neither. So that's not a good rendition. That's not a good example. How many are there? There are many. In Deuteronomy 33, 2, it talks about tens of thousands. Hebrews 12, 22, and Revelation 5:11 says they're innumerable, innumerable. Genesis 19, this is not in your notes. In Genesis 19, there's a story of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. There was a guy named Lot. You can still kind of see that, but that's okay. There was a guy named Lot who lived there, and Abraham had been praying that God would maybe save Sodom and Gomorrah, but there weren't enough righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah for it to be saved. So, in Genesis 19, a guy named Lot is hanging out by the gates. He sees two guys walk up, and he doesn't recognize them. There's something different about them. They're two angels. So he starts talking with the two angels as they walk up to the gate. So in terms of the nature of angels, like they are just walking along and hanging out. Like they can do that. They can take on a form that's physical and they can just be hanging out with people. So as they walk through the town to Lot's house, people notice them. Lot knew they were a little different. The average person there didn't. How do we know that? Because that evening, a lot of the people in the town came to the door and beat on the door and said, would you please send your guests out to us? We'd like to do things to you that we're not going to mention here in the church. But like they wanted them to come out to do things that were inappropriate. They thought they were just two dudes that were new to town and they wanted to introduce them to the way they do things in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, so they looked very human. The angels also, at that moment, as the town was starting to pull on Lot, they blinded a big group of the people outside so they could no longer be going after a lot and pulling on a lot. So they had the power just to blind them in a moment's notice. It also says while they were hanging out with Lot, it says that they had dinner with Lot. So they actually were eating food, okay? So that happened. It also says in Genesis chapter 19, uh, in verse 13, they say to Lot, we are about to destroy this place we are about to destroy this place. So the angels had the power to destroy an entire city, the power to destroy. Here's something that's interesting, though. 
So in verse 13, they say, we are about to destroy this place. In verse 24 of chapter 19 in Genesis, it says this, the Lord rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord did it. The angels say, we are about to do it. But then in verse 24, it says, the Lord did it. So I want you to recognize that. It doesn't happen just here. It happens in multiple places where the angels are doing it, but God gets all the credit for it. The angels are doing it, but God gets all the credit for it. So whether it was the angels that were actually actively doing it, or God doing it, or God doing it through the angels, at the end of the day, God's the one who gets credit for it, though the angels are being used to do it. Let's go to the next page. Page five, roles, revelation, service, and worship. So angels function as God's ministers. Angels, as we saw in Daniel 10, fight demonic forces. Third point says this, angels serve believers as ministering spirits. We see that in multiple verses. Why would God choose to work through angels? Why would he choose to do that? He doesn't need angels to accomplish anything. It's not like God's tired or worn out. God can do it all, all the time, with no expenditure of energy that wears him out. So why does he use angels? The same question could be asked, why does he use you or me? God has decided and God has chosen to work through his creation, through his angels, through his people to accomplish his means. And in doing so, when you and I get to be used to lead someone to Christ or lead a worship service or teach somebody or use any of the spiritual gifts that he's given you to show hospitality or to help someone, you receive joy. It impacts you. We'll see in a little bit, angels oftentimes when they see God at work, they just start worshiping God. So by God working through angels, by God working through us when he doesn't have to, just causes him more glory. And there's this greater outflow of praise because God chooses to work in and through us to accomplish his means. In Luke chapter 1, verses 11 through 19, he uses angels to bring his message in multiple places, not just those two. He uses angels to bring judgments and plagues. You also see that throughout the book of Revelation. God pours out his wrath and he carries out war through angels. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, Exodus 12, verse 23, it talks about the destroyer, or another translation would call it the angel of death. That was that period of time when the Passover was happening, and the firstborn of all of Egypt was going to be killed. Animals, humans, the firstborn of all of Egypt would be killed, and it's the angel of death, the destroyer, who was going to do it. And by the Israelites putting the blood of that Passover lamb on their doorframe, the angel of death would pass over. So in 1223, it talks about the angel of death doing it. In chapter 11, verse 4 of Exodus, in chapter 11, verse 4, it says, the Lord did it. The Lord did it. So again, was it the angel of death that did it? Or was it the Lord who did it? Or is that kind of one and the same because he's working through his angels? Not easy to understand. I'm not going to give you a conclusion to that. But God takes credit for it directly but it's also clearly communicated that it was the angel of death that carried it out. Both are somehow true. God uses an angel to strike Herod dead. Angels proclaim the return of Christ. It's angels who glorify God 
directly. So we see the seraphim worshiping God, but we also see just the regular angels. When they watch God in action and doing things, they respond with worship and they glorify him. This is an interesting last point. Angels are observers. In Luke 15, 10, it says that angels celebrate over a sinner who repents. Maybe you've heard that before. But the angels are actually watching and paying attention to what's happening with man. They're observing. They're watching. And when a sinner places their faith in Jesus and repents over their sin, it says they celebrate. They have an actual response to what's happening. In 1 Peter 1, 12, it says that the angels have a longing to look into the inner workings and spread of the gospel. So when we as a church say things like we're for the gospel and for the city, and when we start living that out more and more, and we're a church that is actually sharing the gospel with the people in our lives and in the city, the angels love to watch that. It says that they long to look into that, to see how that works. So they watch us and they worship God and they respond with celebration and praise. Now, the reciprocal is not true. God doesn't give us a window to watch angels. Like if an angel gets its wings if that's a thing, probably not. Like, we don't sit down here and go, yay for the angel. I mean, like, there's no reciprocal there. Like, they watch us, and they celebrate the actions and the work of God, but we don't get to see them, and we don't see uh, what they're doing, and we don't respond in that way. What's the future of angels? The future, 1 Corinthians 6, 3, it says that we judge the angels. Remember back in Hebrews where it says, for a little while, we're considered lower than angels. There's a day when God puts us in a position when we will judge the angels. What does that look like? I don't know. He doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but we will judge the angels. Second Peter 2.4 says that God does not spare angels. There is no redemptive plan for angels that have fallen, angels that have sinned. Humans do not become angels. That's a really fun plot line in many different movies, okay? But humans do not become angels. What is that movie? It's a, it's a Wonderful Life that we watch every Christmas where it's like Clarence, the second-class angel. He was born in the 1920s or something. I can't remember the story, but like he was a person, and he became a second-class angel trying to get his wings. Great story, but not great theology, okay? People do not become angels. Historical perspective. First century perspective, the Sadducees, remember those guys, did not believe in angels, according to Acts chapter 23. Origen, one of the first church fathers, thought that they thought, he thought, that people would become like angels. The idea of guardian angels has risen through the centuries. In the 300s, one of the church fathers named Augustine said that the saved humans will repopulate heaven to take the place of the angels that have fallen. Thomas Aquinas a dude known as the angelic doctor said this, angels most reflect God's image as primarily intellectual beings. This isn't in your notes, but Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, verse two says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Like he just says that plainly. Okay, it is actually possible. I don't think this is figurative. Like it just, he's just saying it plainly in between other verses where he's just speaking plainly. That it is very possible that you've walked into 
met, eaten with, spent time with someone who's actually not a someone but a something, an angel. It is possible that that has happened. God references it. Isn't that a wild thought? Let's go to the next page, page six. So that discussion was about angels, the good guys, the ones who are ministering spirits, those who glorify God. But on the other side, we have Satan and demons. Anybody here watch G.I. Joe? Just me? Oh, three are willing to admit it, and one in the front row. Uh, there's that little thing they always said at the end, knowing your enemy is half the battle. And they usually pump his fist and get you all excited. Knowing the enemy is half the battle. Well, that's kind of true here. Like the Bible talks extensively about Satan and demons. Like God wants us to know what's going on around us, even though we can't see it. We're given quite a bit of information. The first question that popped into my head, I didn't put this in the notes, but when were angels created? When were angels created? The creation account is in Genesis chapter 1, but they're not clearly and distinctly mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. So when were they created? If you have your Bible, go with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. Exodus 20, 11. And there's more than one point of view on how to answer this question, but nowhere does it say with such clarity that we know with certainty. So in Exodus 20, verse 11, it says this, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and then rested on the seventh day. So here, that idea that God made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them could very well be a reference to absolutely everything that's in them, visible and invisible. So possibly within those days of creation, angels were included. So that's Exodus 20.11. Go with me now to Job, or if you'd prefer just to listen, I'll read it to you. Job 38. So at this point in Job, if you remember the book of Job, God eventually speaks to Job. Job and a bunch of his buddies are sitting around having conversations about why are all these hard things happening to Job. Here, God speaks. And this is what he says, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who sets its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line of it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones? Catch verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So while God was laying the foundations of the earth, it says that the morning stars sang together. It says that the sons of God shouted for joy. Sons of God in the Old Testament is usually a reference to angels. So we would make the assumption here that that's the same reference, that angels were present when God was making the earth. As God was laying out the foundations to the visible creation, angels were like screaming with joy and delight. How awesome is this? How beautiful is this? How wonderful are you, our creator God? Now, the first part of that verse says, when the morning stars sang together. When I first read that, I was confused. 
was it a reference to the stars that God had made actually having joy over the earth that was being laid? Is that what was happening? If that's the case, then all of a sudden, days three and four of Genesis just got flipped backwards. So I went to commentaries, and they suggest that morning stars are just another reference to angels, that that is like a symbolic way also of describing angels, that angels were singing and worshiping God as he was laying the foundations of the earth, described both as the morning stars and as the sons of God. So if that's the case, it's possible that angels were already there before creation went into action. Okay, so we don't know. The answer truly is we don't know with certainty. There is not a clear description of when God created the invisible. All right, so let's go back to our book. Genesis 131. God declares that his creation is very good. If we don't know when they were created, it's really hard to know when did Satan fall? When did Satan sin? The Bible is very clear. These are wicked spirits that have rebelled and sinned against God. But here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God looks at his creation and says it's very good. There's a couple directions we can go in terms of lines of thought here. If we assume that God is speaking of all of his creation, physical and spiritual, then Satan and demons would not have fallen before Genesis 3.31. If he's speaking of visible and invisible creation in Genesis 3.31, then that means none of the angels would have fallen yet, if that's what he's referencing. But we don't know when God says it's very good, if he's referencing both visible creation and invisible creation, the physical world and the spiritual world. We don't know. Adam and Eve at that point only would have saw what was around them. They've only seen the physical creation, so we're not totally sure if God's referencing it all or just physical creation. Satan sins and falls before Adam and Eve sin, yet no mention of this is being made in the historical timeline, nor does it have any clear consequences on the physical universe besides the fact that there is now one who can tempt Adam and Eve placed into the timeline of Genesis history. So when Satan fell, it didn't mean that all of a sudden Adam and Eve were sinful. Like there was no consequence on the Garden of Eden when Satan did fall that we know of. The only thing that changed is now there is one in the Garden of Eden who can distort and deny and tempt them to disbelieve God. So that's what changed. So that last point there says this, if it doesn't have any direct consequence on God's physical creation or mankind, then it is possible in Genesis 1.31, when he says it's very good, maybe it doesn't include evil spirits. But it's hard to know with certainty either way. So we just have to kind of stand there like I did with my flashlight looking in the engine block trying to figure out what was wrong. Maybe they were created before. Maybe they were created after. When exactly did Satan fall? It's just hard to know with certainty. So here's two verses. Uh, one is 2 Peter 2.4, and it says this, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. All right, let's play for a second with important words. So here, the word, and this might depend on which translation you have. Uh, New American Standard says hell. In the Greek, there's multiple different words that can be used, that can be translated into that. So the typical one would be 
Gehenna. And Gehenna does refer to the lasting, like when all said and done, there's heaven and there's Gehenna. Like it's the ongoing place of torment, okay? That's Gehenna. But there's another word that can be used called, well, you've probably heard of that, Tartarus. And that one refers more to just like the lower realms. It seems to have more of a temporary binding or a temporary situation. And the hell mentioned in this verse is Tartarus. So it appears here that God took some of the angels that had sinned and basically bound them to these lower region pits in darkness, reserved for judgment. So there's a day when they'll be cast into Gehenna, but for now they're in this Tartarus, they're in this lower region. How many of them? I don't know. Apparently not all of them, because there's many demons that are still doing things throughout the time of Jesus and even now today. So they're active, but some have been put into this Tartarus for periods of time. Jude Jude verse 6 is kind of like a parallel verse, and it says this, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So there's something going on there. Again, this is a little bit out of our reach, but there are some evil spirits that are being held in places in the lower realms. The Greek word for that is Tartarus. Let's go to Ezekiel 28 together. If you have a Bible, we're going to be here for a little bit, so feel free to pull that thing out. Now, this section is about the leader or the ruler or the king of Tyre. Now, if you spend time in the Old Testament and you read like prophecies about Jesus and the coming Messiah, oftentimes the author is talking about David. But all of a sudden you can tell, though he's talking about David, the subject turns from David to something that cannot possibly be be describing David. That's what happens here in Ezekiel 28. He's talking to the king of Tyre, but all of a sudden, in verses 12 and 13, it changes in such a way that he can no longer be talking about a man. I'm going to go to verse 13. It says this, describing this man who clearly is no longer the one who's the center of attention. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13 says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. The king of Tyre was not in the garden of Eden. All of a sudden, we have a very limited number of people that he can be talking about. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the braille, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis, and the gold and the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Okay, so something happens there until unrighteousness is found in you. Now, here in verse 16, we see a reflection back into humanity. He says, by the abundance of your trade, that's a human description, but then it starts to switch, and you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. 
Your heart was lifting, lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of the splendor, and I cast you to the ground. So that is a wild passage. Satan is described, catch some of those, he's described as perfect in beauty. He was in Eden, the garden of God. So here we see a description of the enemy. We learn that he was created. He was in Sarah to Cherub, which is a powerful class or type of angel. He was on the holy mountain with God. And from the day he was created, he was blameless before God. But then unrighteousness was found in him. He was filled with violence and sin. He was cast out to the ground and God destroyed him and his place of authority in heaven. We read that in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 28. In Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, we have a very similar type of section uh, where he's talking about one, he's talking about the king of Babylon, but in the background, he starts talking about something greater than the king of Babylon. And he calls him the star of the morning, the sun of the dawn. My goal here isn't to make much of Satan. My goal here is just to recognize that he was a powerful being, that God says very powerful things about him. Um, and so our foe isn't to be taken lightly. In the Old Testament, it's good to notice that demons were often, often referenced in light of the gods of foreign, nature, of foreign nations. Let's go to page seven together. The role and the goal of the enemy. So we kind of heard where he came from, but what does he do? In Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, it says, You said, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. You said, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. So what was in Satan's heart when he fell? A desire to be above God, to place God at his feet, to steal the throne. 1 John 3, 8, he has sinned from the beginning. John 8, 44, he is a murderer and a liar, the father of lies. You speak English, he speaks lies. That is his native tongue, the father of lies. It comes natural. He doesn't have to work at it. He is the father of lies. He participates in accusation, temptation, deception, lying, blinding, destruction, and torment. Demons seem to function as Satan's minions and oppose God and seek to disrupt God's work. What's interesting in Revelation 12, 9, it talks about Satan and then it says, and his angels. Like there's a possessive pronoun there, like they're his, like Satan's in charge of this whole gang of angels. So this idea that Satan's like the head of the demons, we see that in scripture in Revelation 12, 9. And we also see that his goal is to deceive the world. He's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses them before God night and day. Demons participate in spreading false doctrine, spreading sickness, fostering self-destructiveness, and even possessing or demonizing people. So I want you to catch this next one. Though he is powerful, he's described as the ruler of the world. He's described as the God of this world. He's described as the prince of the power of the air. Even though he's all those things, 
He is also a defeated foe and lives in subjection to Christ at all times. Very powerful and very defeated. Both of those things are true. So back in college, I lived not because of me, but because of my roommate. I lived in the honors dorms and I found, <laughs> so, uh, so I was used to being in a world of like jocks and athletes. And there's like one way of kind of sinning and having fun outside of God's playing with that, that crew with this crew that was just really smart, but not very athletic. They found really weird ways. Okay. Of, of making unusual choices. So one guy in this one room, there was two of us in each of the dorms. One guy thought he was a vampire and actually had a coffin. Like he'd gotten his bed out and had a coffin, um, <laughs> had a girlfriend that lived up on the floor above us. Not a real looker, okay? Just like, I mean, this was a weird dude, weird people around him. She was pale, he was pale. I don't know if he had to bite her to become his girlfriend. I don't know any of that. But his roommate was a guy who called himself DM. It stood for demon master. He believed he could conjure and control demons. He believed that, like he believed that. He was rooming with a vampire, but like he believed he could conjure and control demons. He would tell us that he could levitate on his bed. Now, I believe the spiritual world is very real, and that could have really happened. The spot where he was completely messed up and wrong was he thought he was in control of them. Demon master, rather than mastered by demons. So that dude, I don't know where he's at today. We didn't really exchange numbers. We didn't spend a lot of time together. Kind of freaked me out, to be honest. I was a freshman. They were juniors. Um, but Anyways, there are people like that that think they're conjuring, controlling the spiritual world. They are not. They are, the enemy is so powerful. And when you mess, oftentimes you're the one that's controlled. You're not controlling them, whether you know it or not. Here's something we have to recognize. This defeated foe is smarter than you, and he's smarter than me. He probably knows the word of God better than you, and he knows it better than me. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your tendencies more than you do. He is fervently looking for chinks in your armor. The Bible describes him as prowling. He is assessing. He's seeking out the weak. He's using lies, temptation, and accusations as he seeks to destroy you and your relationships and your service to the church. Why? To rob God of glory. He still wants his throne above God. So he's seeking with all of his energy to make that so by destroying you and God's church. Sometimes I ask myself the question, I wonder if he's more devoted to my sinfulness than I am devoted to my own holiness. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. He is fully devoted to our sinfulness. Am I as devoted to my holiness as he is devoted to my sinfulness and my, and my failures and my turning my back on my God? In Jude chapter Jude verses 8 through 10 is that, just, that area again where we talked about Michael and Satan basically arguing over Moses' body. What's really interesting there is Michael looks at Satan, and he doesn't like pull out a sword. It doesn't say it becomes like a, some sort of spiritual bloody mess. He looks at Satan and just says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Now, they've been dueling, and they've been at odds probably many times through the centuries, possibly, but his response to Satan is not pulling out a sword on him, it's saying, the Lord rebuke you. 
So we need not be enamored by the angelic realm, angels or demons, but there's a sense of respect we have. In that, we lean onto Jesus's strength. We lean on the Lord for strength. We don't go toe-to-toe with the enemy and act like we can just take him on. Even Michael the archangel doesn't do it that way. He says, the Lord rebuke you. So no matter what's going on in your life, our response is, the Lord rebuke you. Like, we don't go toe-to-toe. He's smarter. He's stronger. We go to our big brother. We go to our God. We go to Jesus, and he takes care of it for us. Now, when you watch Jesus in his ministry and while he's here on earth, Jesus and his disciples had the ability to cast out demons. This power is then extended to those who minister in Jesus' name. We see that in Acts and in James. The enemy, in Ephesians 4.26, it says that he has the ability over time when there's anger to take a foothold into our lives, to have a handle into our relationships. So when anger persists, especially between spouses, it says that the enemy takes advantage of that, and he uses it to distance us from one another and to distance us from the Lord. So we want to run to Jesus in those times and ask for his help and the ability to forgive. John 13, 27. This is that point where Satan enters into Judas. Satan enters into Judas and he leaves the Passover feast. He leaves the Passover meal. And he comes back later, kisses Jesus on the cheek to betray him. So just notice what's happening here. The enemy thinks that he's going to one-up Jesus. Like the enemy has this strategic plan where he's going to betray the Son of God and try to get him killed. What does the Lord do with that? The Lord takes the betrayal to point out who Jesus is, that he might die on the cross, raised from the dead, and completely and utterly defeat sin, death, and Satan himself for all eternity. So the Lord doesn't ever get outsmarted by Satan. The Lord can even use what Satan's trying to do to accomplish his own means. He enters into Judas to try to, to, try to crush Satan. Turns out the other way. In Genesis 3.15, it says that Satan will bruise Jesus' heel. That's what he did on the cross. But it says, then Jesus will crush the head of the enemy, and he does that in the resurrection. So Satan thinks he's getting one up on Jesus, when in actuality, he's just giving Jesus the leverage to take his heel and to smash his head. So we never need to be worried that Satan's taking over the timeline, or that Satan's going to intervene in such a way to stop God from achieving what he desires to achieve. Even with Jesus, he just uses it as leverage for positioning to do what he said he would do and to crush the power and the head of the enemy. Amazing. Individuals can be demonized. Okay, Wayne Grudem says this. He says, demon possession is an unfortunate term that has, been, that has found its way into some English translations of the Bible, but is not really reflected in the Greek text. The Greek word that's used is often referred to as possession is daemon itzomai. But what it typically means is that they're demonized or strongly influenced by a demon. Okay, but I hear Grudem, but you also see that there are times when demons are speaking to Jesus out of the person, okay? So maybe you don't want to call that possession, but it's something, right? It sure feels like that. Like there's demons inside of people 
causing them to make decisions, making them sick, giving them crazy, crazy strength, and they speak to Jesus out of the person. So I see what he's saying, but it sure feels like possession when I'm reading the New Testament. Uh, there appear to be different levels or degrees of demonic attack or influence in the lives of people. Satan tempts Jesus. Do you remember that? Satan straight up, like the most powerful demonic force, Satan goes to Jesus on an, and Jesus has an empty belly, 40 days, nothing to eat. And he tempts him. Jesus responds with the word of God. And where Adam and Eve fail on a full belly, Jesus is victorious with an empty belly, but he has the word of God and trusts it and uses it. So Satan tempts with no success. In the New Testament, we see that there are a lot of people that are sick because of evil spirits. Let's go to page eight. This is an interesting story. I would guess a lot of you have heard it. So in Matthew 8, 28 through 34, Mark 5, and also in Luke 8, 26 through 39, there's this, this record of Jesus interacting with this guy. And he's powerful and he's strong. And as he's approaching the guy, the demons inside of the guy recognize Jesus. And they basically say, what do you want from us, son of God? What do you want from us, Jesus? And they beg him not to cast them in to the abyss or into the pit. They beg him, please don't torture us. Don't harass us. Our name is Legion. Don't put us in those pits. So in 1 Peter, or was it 2 Peter? In 1 or 2 Peter 2.4 and in Jude, we read about these lower regions, Tartarus, where he seems to keep some of the spirits. So maybe that's what's going on here. They know that if Jesus wants to, he can take them and bind them into these lower regions. That is possible. And they're saying, please don't let this happen. 2 Peter 2.4 talks about that. So what do they ask to do? If you remember the story, they say, could we go into those pigs over there? Why? Why would they want to go into pigs? Is there some, something within them where they don't want to be disembodied? Like, we really don't know. But he wants... They want to go into the pigs, so Jesus cast them into the pigs. And if you remember, the pigs then, which are now being controlled by demons, Troy McClung, you have pigs, you have to watch out for this, they all go running off a cliff and they kill themselves. Why did they do that? Send us into the pigs, and then they run the pigs off the cliff and they all die. Okay, just a little secret between us. When I was in high school, I had this t-shirt that had this cliff, and had a bunch of pigs flying off of it, and the top it said, when pigs fly. So I bought it from like a Christian bookstore. I don't think anybody came to know Jesus from me wearing that t-shirt, but I wore it probably every single week because I thought that was just a funny thing to say. But for some reason, okay, these, they take over the decision-making of the pigs, they run them off the cliff to their death, and we have no idea what the purpose is for this action. What were they trying to accomplish? Did they want to be then disembodied again so they could then go in, to another person or return to the same person? We just don't know. So we're left kind of saying, interesting, interesting. And that's where we land there. What about Christians? What kind of influence can demons have over Christians? These evil spirits seem to have strong influence over those they, they inhabit. Christians have the Holy Spirit. So I don't think it is possible for an evil spirit to inhabit a believer because there's no vacancy. The Holy Spirit's already there. 
okay? So I don't think that's possible. I don't know if there's a verse that says that specifically, but I think because the Holy Spirit's there, it's impossible for a demon to be there in the way that he is in some of those people there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Satan certainly has the ability to influence, tempt, accuse, crush, destroy, oppress Christians. He absolutely has that power. It talks about people being driven mad sometimes because of evil spirits. And there's also other times where these evil spirits give them crazy strength. In Acts 19, 11 through 16, and this, for both of these points, it also says here that demons may speak and have knowledge of people and actions taking place in the region. In Acts 19, there's these dudes named the, dudes named the sons of Sceva. There's seven of them. And they're going around and casting out demons. And this is how they're doing it. In the name of Jesus, the one that Paul talks about, I cast you out. That's how they were doing it. In the name of Jesus, that guy that Paul talks about, I cast you out. Well, they ran into one guy and he said, well, I've, I've heard of Paul. I know who Jesus is, but who are you? And then the one guy beats up all seven brothers to the point where they're bloody and naked and run out of the house. Okay? One dude with a demon beat up seven dudes to the point where they were bloody and naked. Why did he make them naked? I don't know. But that's what the Bible says. And they ran out getting beat up. So from that, we see that demons can actually possess people in a way that they have crazy strength. And uh, just referencing Jesus, the guy that Paul knows, doesn't always do the trick. Okay, so don't ever try that. That doesn't appear to work. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul says that he has a thorn in the flesh, a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan is there and tormenting him. Paul prays over and over again to God, please remove this thorn in the flesh. God's response to Paul is, my grace is sufficient for you. He doesn't remove it. So whatever that thorn in the flesh is, is something demonic and is causing him torment and pain. And God does not remove it for whatever reason. We don't know why. It's at least to remind Paul that God's grace is all that he needs. His grace is all that you need. His grace is all that I need, no matter how hard things become. Acts 5.4 is interesting. There's this guy named Ananias who is likely a Christian, but it says that Satan fills his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira have been hanging out with the church. They sell their property, and they say they brought all of it, but they only brought some of it. But just so you know, they probably brought a higher percentage of their property than any of us bring on Sunday morning to put into the buckets, okay? So, like, they bring a large, they bring some portion of what they own to give to the church, but they lie when they do, and they say, we're giving you everything, and somehow Satan was involved in having Ananias and Sapphira make that decision, and God judges them right there in the moment. They're likely Christians. We don't know their heart for sure, but they're likely Christians. So that's a pretty strong influence that he had over Ananias and Sapphira. Ephesians 6.12, so I'm going back up one point. Ephesians 6.12 says, our struggle is not just against what we can see, flesh and blood. It's also against the things that we can't see, the powers and rulers of this age. So like I said before, we just need to realize the fact that right 
past some veil around us. There's a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual world that things are taking place all the time, all around us. How do we get into this battle? Now, when we say that we are for the gospel, immediately you've entered into the battle. It doesn't mean that you need to be casting out demons. It doesn't mean you need to be thinking more about angels and demons. But when you say and you start to live out that we are for the gospel, immediately we're entering into warfare. Because when the gospel is shared, it grows the believer and it brings the unbeliever to faith. Both of those things bring great glory to God. So whenever you do anything that brings great glory to God, you're entering into battle. You're in the middle of it. The enemy hates that. He'll do whatever he can to stop it, to squelch it, to change it. So we enter into the battle all the time, not against what we see, but against what we don't see. Not because we need to see it to fight it, but we need Jesus to fight it in his gospel and his words. That's how we fight. Point C, I'm going to jump over it, but it's written out pretty well. If you want to go to Job and study what it looked like in Job for Satan to come into the presence of God and, and ask to have the ability to go after Job and how God responds to that. It's a very interesting section. I've got a lot of observations I typed out for you. Just something to think about. Let's go back to Daniel 10. Back to Daniel chapter 10. So just to recap that, an angel is sent to Daniel in verse 11 of chapter 10. The angel was sent as soon as Daniel started praying, 21 days ago. But he was held up for 21 days, according to verses 11 and 13. It appears that the angel was sent at the same time that Daniel started praying, but he was held up in traffic. The prince of the kingdom of Persia had stopped him. Somehow, an enemy spiritual being was able to slow down and to hinder this angel that was sent by God. It wasn't until Michael showed up that the angel was released to continue on. Verse 20, catch this. Then he said, this is that angel talking to Daniel. Then the angel said, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. So the angel leaves Daniel and returns to start fighting again. And not only is he fighting the prince of Persia, he's aware of another prince, another appears to be powerful, demonic, or satanic force is also rolling into town called the Prince of Greece. So there is like real war taking place all over the place. So here are some things that kind of stick out from this passage. One, angels seem to have particular assignments. Two, angels are sent. Three, evil angels are fighting against the desires and works of God actively intentionally, with strategic thoughts in mind. There is actual fighting taking place. Like he's returning to fight. What does that look like for an angel to fight a demon? I have no idea, but it is actually happening. These angels are fighting against evil forces. This fighting seems to have some level of consequence on the timing of certain events. So when you start praying for something, you start fasting for something, for someone to come to know Christ, or for some aspect of what you want to see happen within the church, within your neighborhood, where you work. Is it possible that God sends 
an angel to minister to you or to help you or to move something forward and is actually stopped by an evil force? I have no idea. But it happens here, so it's possible, though we don't know with certainty. Some angels appear to be more powerful than other angels. Demons also seem to have particular assignments to nations and people. How interesting that one was called the Prince of Persia. One was called the Prince of Greece. In Deuteronomy 32 and and a couple different Psalms verses, it speaks of the gods of the nations as being demons. So in Daniel, we see King of Persia. We see Prince of Greece. But we also, in the Old Testament, hear about Marduk, Dagon, Baal, even the golden calf. All of those are possibly also demonic forces that are leading and moving, having some control over nations that have denied God. Some of these seem to have the ability to sway, guide, or lead nations in a particular direction. Prayer and seeking God seems to have some connection to this fight. The angel was sent once Daniel started praying. So what happens when you start praying? It seems like I mean, the Bible already tells us to pray, so it's not a surprise. The question is, what happens when we start praying? It seems like we get this little, this little picture, this little tear in the veil where we can see through. And when we pray, or when Daniel prays, things start going into motion. Okay? Does that happen when you and I pray? It says that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. So yeah, we're fighting against the spiritual forces and powers of this age. Things are going in to action. We're going to jump down to the bottom with final thoughts about spiritual warfare. Some have suggested that we must pray that God binds the territorial demonic spirits before a missionary or a church does ministry in a particular place or city. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but I've heard that before. I've done some missionary stuff, and I've heard people say, before you go into a new region, you should pray that God binds that satanic spirit so you then have the ability to go in and bring the gospel with power. That is never actually taught in Scripture. We've read enough, and we've looked at enough verses to see that, yeah, it's possible that demons have particular territories. That might be true, but it doesn't say that we need to bind them. In Mark chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, there's this like, very small parable that talks about you have to bind the strong man before he can take the stuff out of his house. So what some people will say is that's a verse a parable talking about the fact that you have to bind the strong man of a region, a demonic force, before you can go in and take stuff out of his house. But what the verse in Mark 3 is talking about is the fact that Jesus has already bound the enemy. He's bound. He's defeated. It's yours and mine for the taking. The Bible says, pray that God would raise up laborers. The harvest is ripe and plentiful, like the strong man has been bound. We are called to go forward and to take the gospel. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. How about you and I be those feet, okay, when we enter into warfare? Second point, it's important to remember that evil is a combination of our flesh, the world, and the enemy. Sin, Satan, and society. All three of those things are things that we're fighting against. I'm at the bottom of page 10. All those things are things that we're fighting against. Here's my encouragement to you. When you sin, take the credit for it. When you and I sin, we take the credit for it. We don't get to blame the enemy for the choices that we make. 
We don't get to blame the enemy for the attitudes that we have, the thoughts that we have, the way we treat people. Yes, maybe you were tempted. Yes, maybe he had something to do with it. The Bible's very clear, though, that he holds you accountable for that, and he holds me accountable for that. In James, it talks about the fact that when something is tempting us from the outside, it's my own evil desires within me that cause me to actually participate in that sin. So no matter what the temptation is, no matter what the struggle is, when I choose to sin, it's a reflection on my own heart. It's a reflection on your heart. So when it comes to sin, society, and Satan, if we have to lean in one direction more than the other in terms of where the blame is, usually we have to lean the hardest into our own sin to ourselves, even if Satan is involved, even if society is the one that's tempting you. It's between us and the Lord and our brothers and sisters. So biblically, we are most responsible for our own sin, our own fleshly choices. Our greatest concern should be our own sin and our repentance before God. I love this. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 11 and verse 19, and also in verse 20, he is aware of the spiritual warfare going on around him. He's aware of it. But what he starts praying for is that God would forgive him and forgive the nation. He prays, indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice, so that the curse has been poured out on us. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. So he doesn't start praying against the prince of Persia. He doesn't start praying against the prince of Greece. He doesn't start calling down angels to help him. He simply runs to the Lord and says, I am most concerned about this, my sin and the sin of my brothers and sisters. Can you help us get right with you? That's our response to the reality of the spiritual world. Not that we start poking around and trying to control things and dictate things, but rather we run to Jesus and we're most concerned with the status and state of our own heart and our relationship with him. Page 11. Let's go to point E, defeat and final judgment. There is no redemptive plan for fallen angels. You have a redemptive plan in Jesus. That grace, that forgiveness given to us from the cross is not extended to demons and to Satan. Through the death of Christ, Satan has been rendered powerless and no longer holds the power of death. Hebrews 2.14 1 John 3, 8 says the same thing. Revelation 20, 1 through 6, Satan is bound in the abyss for a thousand years. He's then released and he deceives the world. And then he's captured again and he's thrown into the lake of fire of brimstone where the beast and the false prophet will also be. And they will be tormented there day and night forever. He will be in a place. He will be placed in the lake of fire. He will suffer punishment. He will be there forever. Again, our response how do we engage in spiritual warfare? Not in some weird corny way. We don't call down angels. We don't pray against demons. We preach the gospel and we pray and we get to know God's word inside and out. How do we participate in spiritual warfare? On our knees with open Bibles to us first and to those who need to hear it. So we actively share the gospel. And when you do that, you are participating in spiritual warfare. I don't know if you ever read this book. It's a book called This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. Anybody ever read that book? Okay, how about that book, huh? That'll get you thinking at night. So it's a book where there's this little church in this little town, and it describes it from the point of view of angels and demons, and this like stronger angel demon moves into town, and there's all this warfare taking place. By the time you're done reading it, like if a dog barks at you, you're like, 
you cast thee out, Satan. Like, you think a dog's barking at you because there's a demon in charge of the dog. Like, it's so, like, I'm not saying it's a bad book, but it can rattle you. I read it when I was in high school. There's this scene where demons come into this dude's bedroom, and they're just like surrounding him, and he feels this weight on him. The next night, I thought I had that experience. I don't think I was, but you feel like you are. That is not an accurate depiction of spiritual warfare. If a dog barks at you, it's probably just a dog barking at you. If all your pigs run off the cliff, it might be something else, okay? But barking dogs and angry cats are probably not the work of Satan, all right? So that's not something we have to participate in or deal with or be nervous about. We run to Jesus. We find balance. We're aware of it, but God hasn't called us to participate in directly. We participate in our relationship with him and making much of the gospel. And when we do that, we're involved in spiritual warfare. We're at the intermission. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite you to go out and grab some famous Amos cookies, some chips, some drinks. You've got about five or ten minutes. Use the restroom and come on back in. And we're going to talk about what God created physically and visibly. So in between eating your famous Amos cookies, if you grab your book and turn to page 12... So we're going to stay at the same pace. I feel like we moved pretty quickly through that. We're going to keep moving pretty quickly. Uh, again, this is something you always can go back to. The reason why I try to put as much down as possible is so you always can go back and review. And also we'll have this on podcast. We'll have this on video. Uh, that way you always can go back to it and reference it. Page 12, the world. So we talked about the fact that God created everything that's invisible. He's created the unseen. But God's also created everything that can be seen. And God personally and intentionally created everything. He personally and intentionally created everything. This concept is totally under attack throughout the world, especially in the United States. So some of these things I'm going to say, and you're going to say, that's obvious, I already knew that. But just realize, as you're interacting with people at Chipotle, in your neighborhood, where you work, they don't have a biblical worldview necessarily that we have of why creation exists and why it is the way that it is. They've been taught through probably all of public school, through their secular college, that creationism is a ridiculous notion, and only evolution, only the Big Bang is the only thing that makes sense. And many believe that it's already been scientifically proven. Even though it'll say it's a theory, many just believe it's been proven, that there's not even a discussion to take place. Uh, we believe it's been proven in the other direction because God said it, it is so. So, as we go through some of these points, we need to recognize that oftentimes for people to go from where they are to start to understand that it was actually God who did this, they're going to go through stages and steps to get there. It is not easy for someone who's never heard of creationism to go from where they are to buying into, he did it all in six days, that's it. Okay? They don't get there quickly. So it takes place over time for people to come to those understandings. So as we talk, in your mind, just kind of think through what stages can you work through with someone to get them there. Uh, but let's talk through it together. The Bible starts here, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So before the beginning, there was no beginning. There was only the eternal state. So even though God here says, in the beginning... For him, it wasn't his beginning. He had already existed for all of eternity. So the in the beginning 
is when creation started. It's when time started, not when God started, okay? In the beginning is a reference to the fact that God creates time. Past, present, and future is from God's creating work. God creates the heavens, which means he creates all of space. Width, length, depth is from the hand and mind of God. He creates the earth and all matter. Every atom, every molecule, he created all of it. Solid, liquid, and gas is God's design, and he made it as so. God is the creator and master of all time, space, and matter. And realize this, he is not bound, he is not controlled, he is not limited in any way by what he has made. You are completely limited by time. You and I are completely limited by matter and space. You can't get around it. Every moment of your life, from when you're born to when you are dead, you are bound by space, matter, and time. You are bound by those things. God is not bound at all by those things. He sees everything at once. He can be everywhere at once. And he can be, he, like, time isn't a reference point for him like it is for you and me. He simply says, I am. I am. He just is. He sees past, present, and future all at the same time. He's outside of time. God created out of nothing. God creates light, heavenly hosts, water, land, all of life, measurements of time and day. He creates all of these things ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. God didn't reshuffle matter. Matter is not eternal in any way. Every atom, every molecule went from nothing to becoming what they are. Every form of matter came from the simple reality of God saying, let there be, and then there was. He didn't take a big ball of Play-Doh and squish it around and make things out of it. There's no eternal Play-Doh. There isn't. There was no matter before God made matter and spoke it into being. So why did God create? Was he lonely? Was he bored? Did he just need something to do? None of those are the reasons. Sometimes we picture God as being this old guy sitting on a log, stroking that beard, trying to figure out what to do with himself. That is not how God is described. He's lived in perfect community all of eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a wonderful quote by Greg Allison here. It says, God created everything out of the superabundance of his love to display his glory, that is to manifest his goodness and his greatness. It's out of an overflow that God created. There was so much love and enjoyment and delight within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that it overflowed into God deciding to create everything you see and you and me. C, creation is described in reference as a historical event in Scripture. Psalm 136, in verses 5 through 9, God is praised for his creation as a historical event. Verses 10 and 11, he's praised for redeeming the people of God out of Egypt, a historical event. He's praised for parting the Red Sea, giving them the promised land, historic events. The creation account is put right alongside all the other historical accounts as being true, actual history, something that happened. God is worthy of being praised for each of those things, and each of them are equally as true. They came from his hand in time, space, history. So creation 
and points in history are all viewed from the same vantage point, real, actual, and taking place in time-space history, resulting in praise. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln, the Civil War, creation, all part of history, equally true, equally happened. They all happened. The real action of God in creation of all things lies at the roots of Christian worship. If you take out creation, everything falls apart. The reason why Jesus came and died on the cross is because he had a fallen creation. If God didn't create it, there was no reason for Christ to come and save it. It is the foundation piece for so much that we do. Adam and Eve were created as real people, directly created by God. I looked multiple times for slides. They all have naked people, so I just didn't put any of them on the screen. Or they just have like a tiny little fig leaf. I, I like to always picture it as really big fig leaves. But for some reason, all the pictures are very small fig leaves. But they were directly created by God. Why do I want to emphasize that? The Bible doesn't describe them as slowly becoming Adam and Eve over time through mistakes and mutations. They describe it that God actually formed Adam from the dust of the ground by him breathing life into him. And Eve, from the rib of the man and from God's own hand and action, God directly and personally created Adam and Eve. Jesus points to Adam and Eve as historical people who are part of a historical event that shapes our view of marriage and divorce today in Matthew 19, 3 through 5. Like he just references them. Like this really happened. Adam and Eve are real people. This really happened. What they did has consequences on what's going on all around you today. The New Testament points to the creation event, Adam and Eve, and the fall, all as historical events and historical people with real consequences. God creates a world of doxology that proclaims his glory and displays his glory. So, again, to those who've grown up in church, you already know this. But so much of Charleston, so much of the Canal Valley does not know this, believe this, or has ever even thought through this. So, we need to deny the idea that humanity is simply a result of mutations and mistakes. We need to deny that we exist without intentionality, that we exist without purpose. Because the other point of view, an evolutionary point of view, says that really you're only here by a series of accidents, mistakes, and mutations. That just goes against what God says. I wasn't there. You weren't there. God was there, and he spoke clearly about what happened. He says, I personally made you. I intentionally made you. Your design, your form, your function is from my head through my hands to who you are today. God was completely involved. Now, those things we know with certainty, very clear. But when it comes to the creation account, the Bible speaks clearly, but doesn't speak completely exhaustively about it. Can you imagine the number of pages in this Bible that there would be if he talked through how he took nothing and created matter out of it? How the stars aligned, his wisdom behind black holes and suns that just fall apart? Like, he didn't give us details on a lot of creation, a lot of how he did what he did, but it does speak truly. So the creation event is given to us with true communication, but not exhaustive communication. It speaks of angels, heaven, creation, angels, astrology, but does not speak exhaustively. 
We can never expect the Bible to be a scientific textbook. We would never expect it to be a medical reference. If your back really, really hurts, you need to go see a doctor. You're not going to find a verse to help you. We can't treat it as a medical reference. It's also not a scientific textbook. It doesn't intend to be. Where the Bible does speak, it speaks with accuracy concerning all that it says, but it doesn't speak about many things. A guy named Francis Schaeffer talked about this. It says, referencing knowledge gained from the Bible and from common grace, which is another word for science, Francis Schaeffer states, in practice, it may not always be possible to correlate the two studies because of the special situation involved. Yet if both studies can be adequately pursued, there will be no final conflict. In other words, if you study God's creation, what you learn about his creation would be consistent with what he says about his creation. But when it comes to common grace, when it comes to science, we have a limited understanding of what we're studying. We're still trying to figure out DNA, aren't we? I mean, we're finding things smaller than atoms within atoms, okay? Like, we haven't even figured out what the smallest particle is yet. Like, we're, we're not even there yet. So we're not in a position to speak with authority about God's creation based upon common grace, based upon our scientific study, because it's beyond us. An infinite God created it. Finite brains are not going to fully grasp it. So the results of scientific study will not always align with God's creation, but it's only because of lack of knowledge within scientific study. But Francis Schaeffer's point is, from heaven looking down, there will be no final conflict. What God says is true of his creation, and as we study and what we learn of creation, they will be the same when we have all, no all the knowledge that we need to make a right assessment of what we're studying. Right now, it feels like conflict sometimes, but there's a day when there's no final conflict. And that's the title of that book if you ever want to look it up. So, general revelation must always yield to special revelation. In other words, science versus what the Bible says as Christians, since we believe these are God's words and these are man's words, man's words always have to be in subjection to God's words. Okay? And when there's conflict and disagreement, who are you going to go with? My suggestion is that you go with what God said, because he's the one who was there, okay? The Bible, last little quote there at the bottom, the Bible does give us all we need to know concerning the coming of Christ, the life of Christ, and of the Christ who has come and is coming back. So what is the purpose of God's word? It's not to give you every detail about creation, though it tells us a lot about creation, but its purpose is to make sure that you know before Christ came, that he's coming. That you know during the life of Jesus that this indeed is the Messiah. That you know, as in the New Testament, it points back to the Jesus who came, that you know he was the Messiah and what he accomplished for you. That is the purpose of the Bible. And where it's focused, it does it perfectly. Page 14. The doctrine of creation is under attack. The gospel message rests on creation and the fall of mankind. Removing these truths is to pull the rug out from under the gospel. It falls apart. When we talk about the gospel, we've tried to make it as simple to talk about as possible. If you've heard us through Matt in a sermon series and some of our little uh, tracks that we use to share the gospel and on our website, we use 10 words. God creates, sin breaks, Jesus saves, Jesus transforms, and God restores. We start with God creates. We start there. 
oftentimes when you see like little tracks we use to try to share the gospel, they don't start with that. But we feel like you have to start there. If God didn't create it, then there's no purpose. Everything becomes meaningless. So we start with the fact that God created all things. Without it, the gospel has very little meaning. It really does start to fall apart. We must hold to God alone being the creator. Creation is communicated as a historical biblical event, a source of worship for the Christian, and a foundation for our present understanding of the world and for the one to come. All right, let's jump into it. Historically, the church is held to a six-day creation. But since that time, camps have arisen disagreeing on the length of the actual days. The Bible says day. Some say day means day, 24 hours. Some look at it and say, maybe it means something else. Maybe that's figurative. So camps have arisen disagreeing on the length of the actual days in the creation account, when creation took place, and even the nature of the creation event. So here's an important question. Where must we fight? Where can we agree to disagree? That's important. We have to be able to distinguish that. Where is the absolute essential thing that we have to believe? And where could there be some differences of opinion and it's okay to still live in peace with one another? Particular dates and lengths of time held by particular camps or positions that do not deny the work of God in creation can be debated without the loss of core gospel truths. If I'm sitting across from a brother, and I have lots of brothers who would land here who would say, I think the days of creation over a longer period of time. And I would sit there and say, well, I think it probably six days means six days. They've recognized their sin. They've repented before Jesus. They've placed their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But they're not totally sure where they land on those six days. Can we still have fellowship? Can we still be friends? Yeah. Can we have fervent conversations about that? Absolutely. But there's no reason for me to then become disconnected or to become disunified with that brother or sister over that topic. We can agree to disagree there, and it's okay. So, particular dates... Okay, let me read this one one more time. Particular dates and length of time held by particular camps that do not directly deny the work of God in creation can be debated without the loss of core gospel truths. Yet, here's what I'm suggesting. We must be very slow to move away from what seems to be the plain meaning of the text. We must be slow to move away from what seems to be the plain meaning of the text. But here's what's hard. We don't actually have additional prehistoric narratives to compare with the Genesis 1 account. I mean, the Genesis 1 account is like prehistoric. So we have historical narratives, okay, where it talks about what happened, and there were lots of people who saw it, and there are certain ways that we wrote that, like Genesis started with chapter 2, on through the entire Old Testament. We see historical narrative. Before Genesis 2, it's prehistoric narrative. We can't go anywhere else to see any examples of how prehistorical documents, prehistorical literature was written, how to interpret it, and the way that it should be read and understood and interpreted. We don't have many examples. If you read Genesis chapter 1, it is clear that it has a certain cadence that isn't in chapter 2, has a different feel than chapter 2. Uh, it has some poetic elements that are not in chapter 2. 
That doesn't mean it's not saying exactly what it's trying to say, but it certainly feels different than chapter two. And again, we have nothing to compare it to to figure out the best way to interpret it. We just kind of have to acknowledge that. As with many portions of scripture, intended method of interpretation can be debatable. In this passage, is it to be taken literally? Should it be figurative, allegorical, symbolic, poetic, or a combination of those? Christians should agree to the historicity of the account, but we should be slow to judge others as wrong if they have a little different point of view than what we have. So if you land on one position interpreting it, I land on another position, I think we should try to move towards what seems to be the plain meaning of the text, but if you land someplace a little differently than I do, it doesn't mean I say, get out of my church. It doesn't mean I say, I can't be your brother in Christ. Because the reality is, Genesis 1 is just a little bit different than anything else ever written in all of history. So it's hard to say with certainty, this is the way it must be interpreted. It's just hard. So we have to have an element, a kernel of humility when we go into those conversations. So here's my suggestion. Science should not be our guide to interpretation. Just because it's a hard chapter doesn't mean we should try to figure out from science how we should interpret Genesis chapter 1. There's a tendency to do that. I would say on both sides. There's a tendency for some people to say, well, it looks like everyone's buying into evolution and earth that's been around for 80 billion years. And because of that, I'm going to take the scientific information and use that to interpret Genesis 1. I don't think that's what God wants us to do. We don't use science to interpret scripture. I would also say we have to be careful. There's lots of great science out there showing that the earth is really much, much, much younger than what that crew says that it is. That would also not be the source for me determining what Genesis 1 says. Genesis 1 is where I should determine what Genesis 1 says. Science does not guide my interpretation, nor should it guide your interpretation. The Bible, the Holy Spirit, church history should help us guide our interpretation of Scripture, not science. If we put both feet on science, we're in a dangerous place. It is science that is always evolving, discovering, coming to new conclusions and points of view. We can look to science, but we must stand on God's truth. God's word leads. Science must follow, not the other way around. Not the other way around. But, but, in the public square, they don't care what Genesis chapter 1 says. In the public square, like to walk onto a secular university and start arguing Genesis 1, they don't care. They believe it's fable. They believe it's myth. So at that point, I think sometimes that's a really good time to bring up some scientific data that shows that the earth maybe isn't as old as they think it is. I mean, I have a friend that could show you 3,000 slides that are excellent showing science that shows that the earth isn't as old as they think it is. In the public square, it's a great time to have those scientific debates and those scientific conversations. But those conversations don't need to guide us in the church and how we interpret Genesis chapter 1. Evolution and pro-evolution arguments using carbon dating and dirt layers have strong scientific counter-arguments against this theory and even against the old earth point of view. Secular conclusions which fully exclude God must be challenged with logic and studies which seem to contradict their theories and conclusions. So there's great arguments on, there's arguments on both sides. If you think that only the secular, non-God-believing world has science, it's on both sides. It's okay to look at both sides, but at the end of the day, 
It's scripture that needs to guide us. In any place where we see God being cut out of the picture, any place where we see the Bible being put under the authority of science, that's not okay. We have to run from that. That's where we should get nervous. This next point says, theistic evolution has become vogue in many Christian circles. And I don't know what circles you've run in or where you've had conversations, but it is becoming popular where they say that evolution happened just the way those who don't know God, don't fear God, say that it's happened, and God just kind of put his finger down and touched it along the way to make sure it went in the right direction. That's becoming very vogue. There's lots of people that believe that. We need to realize that this, this position paints a very different picture of creation than the one that Genesis gives. It robs the account of miracle. It robs the account of the dominance of divine activity in the creation event. It rejects the consensus of, histor of the historical church and ignores many of the problems of the evolutionary theory. It is merely a shifting of faith from the Bible to science, from God to human theory. That is something we have to be careful of. <clears throat> In heaven, we will fully see that there is no final conflict between God's creation and the scientific study of that creation. Here's where I would land as a conclusion. And this is me. This is me landing here. Uh, you can land in a different place, and we can still be friends, if we're not friends already. Uh, regardless of where an individual or a church falls, in their position on the length of the creation event, all guns should be pointed at the godless evolution as the enemy, not at one another. The enemy loves to get us infighting. The enemy loves to create division and disunity and rob the church of the peace that the Holy Spirit has given us. So when that happens, when we move to infighting, we become distracted from sharing the gospel, living our life in the gospel, praying that the gospel would move forward. That is something that cannot happen. So if you find yourself infighting rather than outreach, just check yourself. Just check yourself. These are good conversations to have within the walls of the church in peace, with kindness with one another, desiring to love one another first and foremost. Um, and at the end of the day, we're still brothers and sisters and we have peace. So it's okay to land in different places. Um, and we can still care about each other. The question is, are we taking the gospel to the city? Page 15. Animals. I wasn't sure if I should include this or not, but this is just a good question. My kids have asked me questions about this. So where do we land when it comes to the purpose of animals and the potential eternal existence of animals? So animals are in the garden. When God says the garden is very good, there are animals there. Before the fall, animals only ate plants, according to Genesis 1, 29 through 30, even though many were clearly designed by God to be predators. I mean, if you looked over at that lion and watched him eat that radish, he was probably an unhappy lion. I mean, like, he's designed for something more, okay? And eventually, he uses all the canines that he's been given. Romans 5, 12 references that there was no death before sin, okay? There was no death before sin. Primarily, this is a reference to man and to spiritual death. Romans 5.21, which is the context of Romans 5.12, talks about the fact that man died spiritually, and that's the focus there, not physically. But physically, physical death is certainly in view, and it is likely, though not a certainty, that this includes no death among animals before the fall, possibly pointing to their future nature. In other words, Romans 5 nowhere talks about animals, but it says no death. So it's possible that it includes all animals. It's not the focus, but it could also be included. <clears throat> so 
So if animals were in the garden and possibly they weren't dying in the garden, that points to the possibility of animals also being in heaven and not dying in heaven. Animals are saved along with Noah and are included in the covenant of every living creature that will no longer be judged by water. And God uses a rainbow to seal that covenant. Every created thing in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea together worship Christ in the end. In Revelation 5, it paints this picture of everything in the earth, on the earth. Everything is worshiping God. So it sounds like, it just feels like he's possibly referencing, he's referencing animals and people and every part of his creation throughout all of eternity are worshiping him. Again, that's not for sure, uh, but it, it sounds like it. This isn't, in, this isn't in your notes, but Isaiah chapter 11 at the beginning, and Isaiah 65, 25, talks about a future day when the wolf and the lamb will lie together. It talks about a future day, not yet, in the future, where the lion, or I'm sorry, the wolf and the lamb will lie together. Is it literal or is it figurative? I don't know with certainty. No one knows with certainty. I laid out multiple commentaries. No one agreed with each other. But it's possible that it is a reference to actual animals forever in heaven. Christians will have eternal bodies in heaven. We know that to be sure. There will be no threat of death. There will be no marrying or reproducing for Christians in heaven. Animals do not receive judgment. Animals are not redeemed. Animals do not receive a new body. But perhaps there will be animals created or born that have some sort of enduring nature given to them by God. We are only speculating here. We do not know for sure. So if you're a farmer on earth and you, we have, get to go to the, the new heaven and the new earth, will God give you animals? I have no idea. You get a new body. I know that. You get to live with him forever. I know that. Will you have animals? I do not know. We are not sure. So what about my childhood pet? You've probably all had that discussion at some point with one of your kids. Will Scruffy be in heaven with me? You know, will he? Okay, so it depends on your point of view on your animals, okay? So if Scruffy comes back, that means that my gerbil Mudge has to come back. And when I was a kid, I wasn't very big, I had these series of blocks, one smaller than the other, you could put one in the other in the other, and I took Mudge and I put him in the big box and he ran around, took him out, put him in a little bit smaller box, and he sort of ran around, put him in the next box, and he just stood there, pulled Mudge out, put him in the really small box, and kind of helped him get all the way in, <laughs> pulled Mudge out, and Mudge was limp. So I went to my mom, I'm like, Mom, Mudge is not moving. And she said, what'd you do? I said, well, I, I got him into the box. I put, I put him in the box. She goes, well, you snapped Mudge's neck. <clears throat> So the last thing I want to hear is that Mudge, for all of eternity, is going to be sitting on my bookshelf in a cage staring at me. Like, I don't want that to happen. That will ruin heaven. My grandmother, my grandmother, who is a, was a wonderful woman, loved Jesus. I'm a Christian today because she prayed for me and God used her prayers. Uh, she had more, normally two or three cats and multiple dogs. They were all named Smokey. Not Smokey 1, Smokey 2. Smoky, 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 smoky. And for all of her life, every dog and cat she's ever had was named Smoky. So if they all come back, no matter how big her mansion is, it is going to be filled with stinky Smokies everywhere. I mean, what a mess. So I don't need Scruffy to come back. And I hope Mudge doesn't come back. But there might be something for animals in heaven. Very, very possible. All right. Page 16. 
So with page 16, we're gonna show you up here on the screens. I already went over this information in a different core class. So what I'm gonna have you do is just write down at the top of page 16, if you can see that. Uh, you click on the top, it says next steps, and then it comes down, it says core class. You click on core class, and then it's right there. It's called the gospel. This right here was covered in the third session of the gospel. Look at that. There it is. I'm not sure if that says two or three, but it should be the third core class. So we're going to skip pages 16 through 20. We're jumping to page 21. But you can go back. It's an hour core class. We cover all those pages. It's almost identical in here as what I went over there. So God created everything. Adam and Eve are in the garden. God looks at Adam and Eve, and he sets up a situation. Genesis 2, 16 through 17, he says this. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So, oftentimes this is called the covenant of works. The word covenant is not used here in Genesis. However, all the major parts of a covenant or a contractor is here. So when I say covenant, think of like a marriage covenant between you and your wife. It's like a, it's a commitment, it's a contract between two parties. In these verses, there's a clear definition of the parties involved. There's a legal binding, a set of provisions that stipulate the conditions of their relationship. There's a promise of blessing for obedience and the condition for obtaining those blessings. Uh, in other ways of saying this, uh, it, from a guy named Schofield, he would call this the dispensation of innocence. Okay, it's another way of describing this. It's important to note here that it is God who initiates with man. Man doesn't go up to God and say, so what do you want me to do? God looks at man and tells man, this is the way it's going to work. Here's what you're not allowed to do. So this next part is interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought of this before. The blessing, I described that in those description that there was a promise of a blessing. There was also a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. The Bible talks about it. Theologians suggest that the covenant of works was in a place for a period of time, and when they checked the box, when they passed that provisional period of time, Adam and Eve would have been permitted to have eaten from the tree of life, and they would have lived an endless and sinless life with God. That's speculation. Is theologians guessing. But the idea there is that there's a consequence. But for a period of time, if you're obedient, perhaps there's also a blessing. So you'll see that in lots of different theology books. Again, it's guessing, it's speculation, especially since God already knew they were going to fall. God knew they were going to sin. So this was never actually going to happen. Are we still under some kind of covenant of works today? Not at all. We are not in any way under a covenant of works. We're under, a we're, under, we're under grace. What Jesus accomplished for us on the cross is all that matters. It doesn't matter how good you are, it doesn't get you to heaven. There's no commandment that you obey that gets you through the pearly gates. It's because of what Jesus did for you and the grace he's willing to give you is why we can ever, ever go to heaven. Well, what about the Jewish people in the Old Testament? What about the Israelites? Were they under a covenant of works? If you remember the Old Testament, all the time God is giving them new rules and laws. I mean, there's hundreds, thousands of laws given. There's expectations, there's, there's rituals and festivals and feasts that they're supposed to be having. Were the Israelites under a covenant of works? Did they have to meet a certain level 
that they have to meet a certain level of obedience to be accepted by God. Let's talk about that. This is what the Bible says. When it comes to the cross, the cross took place at a point in time. We'll say this is before Jesus came. This is after Jesus came. When Jesus died on the cross, everyone who places their faith in Jesus is forgiven because of the blood shed on the cross. The blood of Christ rolls on into eternity, taking care of everyone who places their faith in Jesus. When the Bible talks about Old Testament saints, Old Testament believers, it says stuff like this, Romans 3.20, no one is declared righteous under the law. So no one in the Old Testament was ever declared with a right standing before God by being obedient enough. That never happened. Romans 4.3, referencing Habakkuk 2.4, an Old Testament book, says, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was given a right standing before God, not because of what he did, but because he believed in God. Galatians 3.7 says, those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith are connected deeply to Abraham. So not only does the blood of Christ flow forward, it also flows backwards for those who trusted in God and believed in God. God forgives both because of his grace through faith, both directions. The blood of Christ flows in both directions, into the Old Testament, into the New Testament. Those who believe and place their trust in God, God saved them by faith. Now, they didn't have as much information as a New Testament believer. Whatever the promise was, whatever the stipulation was, or periods of time where God acted in different ways, and if they believed and trusted God with whatever God had revealed to them, they were believers, like you're a believer. And the blood of Christ takes away their sins like it takes away your sins. They were not under the covenant of works. What happens when we as believers function like we're still under the covenant of works? What happens if you and I begin to believe, you and I begin to believe that by acting a certain way, by being just obedient enough, that I can earn more favor with God? What happens? We start to feel this weight and this pressure that my performance dictates my relationship with God. No longer am I just settling and resting into the love of God. I'm walking into God's presence assuming he has a frowning face because I know, just like you know, that we never live up to God's standards. So if we act like we're living under the covenant of works, if we're acting like our obedience determines our acceptance before God, we will never be satisfied. We'll always be disappointed. And also, the people who are living life around us we put a heavy burden, a heavy weight on them as they try to live up to our expectations, trying to live like us to find, to find acceptance with God and connection with God. So we have to be really, really careful. Let's go to the bottom. Adam and Eve had a legitimate choice to make. I'm asked sometimes as I'm teaching these core classes, what do I think about free will? And this could be a really long discussion, but I'm not gonna make a really long discussion. What do I think about free will? Adam and Eve in the garden, I believe, had the total ability to make whatever choice they needed to make. So there's an example of free will. With no sinful nature, what did they choose? With no sinful nature, they chose rebellion against God. With no sinful nature, they disbelieved God. So if that's what free will looks like, you can have your free will. I don't want it. Like, 
When we see free will in action, it looks scary. When I see God working in and through his people, I get really excited. That's what I want, more of him. So yeah, there's free will, but I'm not, I'm not out trying to get more of it. Because when you see it in action, it looks like a scary thing, not a wonderful thing. I want Jesus in control of my life. The temptation. All right. So I'm trying to think through the 40 minutes of information I have, how to turn this into 10 minutes of, of conversation with you. Here we go. So when it comes to the temptation, we talked about the fact that Satan has fallen. The Garden of Eden is considered very good. There's no sin. They have no sinful nature. But Satan shows up as a tempter, as a tempter. And he starts talking to Eve through several different lies and distortions. We need to realize that the lies that Satan uses here in the garden are oftentimes the same lies that he uses in your life and in mine. The same way how he tried to twist Eve up is the same way he's trying to twist you and I up. He's limited. He doesn't have this endless bag of tricks. He has a limited bag of tricks. So here, some of his tricks are exposed. So if we learn them and we get them, we can catch them when we see them coming into our mind and coming into our life. So Genesis 3.1, the serpent, Satan, talks to Eve, and he says, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Do you remember what he said? That wasn't quite right. Indeed, has God said you should not eat, eat from any tree of the garden? God only said you, can, you can't eat from one tree. And Satan goes in the direction where he makes God sound a little ridiculous. Did God say you can't enjoy any of this? Did, did he really say that you can't enjoy all these wonderful things that he's made? So Satan distorts God's words. He distorts them. He makes God seem unreasonable oppressive. He makes God seem power hungry. Eve responds, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Eve adds something there that or touch it. She added that. So even though Satan just threw in a little distortion, made God seem just a little unreasonable, a little oppressive, Eve is already starting to buy into that. In her response, she adds to God's commandment. You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The Bible doesn't say that God told Eve not to touch it. She just added that in there. All of a sudden, she's starting to wonder, is God slightly oppressive? Is God a little unreasonable? She's adding to God's command. So next... Let's go down a little bit farther to B. It goes from that direction to even more. The serpent continues the temptation and tells Eve, surely you will not die. Surely you will not die at the bottom of page 22. So at first he's distorting God's word just a little bit. Now he's straight up denying God's word. Before it was a slight distortion, now it's denying it. God did say that they would die when they ate the fruit. The serpent says, surely you won't die. God would never actually do that. That sounds unreasonable. Who would act that way? Let's go to point C. The serpent finishes the temptation. He puts the nail in the coffin. He says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. 
So first he says, you won't die. In fact, what's really happening here is that God's holding good back from you. God is denying you from a wonderful future and a beautiful opportunity to be more like God. God's being unreasonable. God is basically saying, I'm all about me. I'm going to hold you down. That's what Satan starts to do to Eve. God seems unreasonable. Then he seems oppressive. And then he seems like he doesn't have their good in mind. So he's, go, he's going after God's very character, his very attributes. He's saying, God doesn't really love you. God's in this for himself, not for you. If you want to be taken care of, you have to take matters into your own hands. You have to do this yourself, your way. My suggestion, according to the serpent, is go ahead and take of the fruit. Because if you do take of the fruit, it's going to better you. You're going to be more like God. Eve buys into it. You and I so often buy into it. How often do we no longer go to Jesus for help and we just try to do it ourselves? How often does it feel like God's withholding something from us because we don't get everything that we want? We go this direction. We think this way. God's word is distorted oftentimes. His character is questioned. In our last, you can go to page 24. In our last core class, we spent several weeks just looking at God Almighty, just looking at God Almighty. We must pursue a deeper and deeper knowledge of who God is and what he is like. If we don't, the enemy at any given moment, because it says he's always prowling, he's always lurking, he's always looking for opportunities to find chinks in your armor for you to believe a lie. The Bible describes it as fiery darts. Lies are being cast in your direction. If he can find a chink in your armor, a lack of knowledge that you have about God, he will take advantage of that to distort God's word, to deny God's word, to cause you to start questioning God's character and his love for you. You've probably sensed that at different moments in your life, in the lives of people close to you. This is the lie that he loves to use. And here, it's effective. In the middle of page 24, it says, the pursuit of God and the knowledge of God is of supreme importance. As you read God's word, Old and New Testament, here's the question I want you to continually ask. What am I learning about God here? What is he trying to teach me about himself? So if you're reading about Samson crushing Philistines, the question is, isn't just how many Philistines did Samson kill, but what do I learn about God Almighty? Okay, when you're watching Jesus interact with a broken person, what do I learn about Jesus? What do I learn about the Father? What do I take from this? So we're always studying the Bible with that thought in the front of our mind. What am I learning about the character and the attributes, and the beauty, and the glory, and the majesty of my God. We're always asking that question. Here's three books. <clears throat> if I can encourage you to load up your bookshelf, I would want you to have all three of those on your bookshelf. The one in the middle by Arthur W. Pink is probably the easiest one. The one on the left, I think, is the funnest one by A.W. Tozer. It's called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's not easy, but wow, it takes your idea of God and just blows it up. Finite, He's infinite. He starts pushing your boundaries and understanding who God is. The one on the far right by John Frame, it's a big one. I mean, it's, it's that big. It's worth your time. I mean, really, what better can you do with your time than think about how awesome God is and learn about him from his word? So I would encourage you to have all three of those books on your shelf. It is easy 
The next little phrase there on your page says, it is easy to think that we would have made a better decision or a better choice than Adam and Eve if we were in the garden. But remember, you and I daily distrust God. You and I daily forget his word and make decisions based upon our desires instead of his commands. Every single day, you and I prove that we're no better than Adam and Eve. So if you've ever thought that if you were in the garden, you would have done better, every day you and I prove, no, we wouldn't have. Because every day we don't do better. At the bottom, another quote from Francis Schaeffer says this, don't be proud. As you look out across the world of sinners, weep for them. Be glad indeed if you are redeemed, but never forget as you look at others that you have been one of them. And in a real sense, we are still one of them, for we still sin. Christians are not a special group of people who can be proud. Christians are those who are redeemed. That's it. That's all. When you look at someone else who's struggling, falling apart, who's broken by their sin, who's addicted to something, who's broken their relationships, who's ruined their family, you are no better. You've just received grace. You're no better. We're worthy because of Jesus. We're accepted because of Him. It's His work that makes us acceptable, not your work, not mine. Not your decisions, not my decisions, the decision He made to die in our place for us. That's what changes everything. Page 25, the fall. So when we talked about those 10 words, it starts with God creates, and then the second two words are sin breaks. And it says here at the top, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she also gave her husband who was with her, and he ate. It doesn't take much for something deadly to seem de desirable. It doesn't take very much distortion or buying into something that the enemy has encouraged us to deny that God has told us for us to go in a deadly direction, for temptation to change who we are, and we choose sin over God. So when we say sin breaks, if we had time, we would talk through the fact that sin broke everything. It broke your relationship with God. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said you would die. Did they die the moment they ate the fruit? They didn't die the moment they ate their fruit, but they spiritually died the moment they ate their fruit. And now physical death was coming. To dust, they would return. So sin breaks your relationship with God. There's no way that you can fix it. It's forever broken until Jesus comes. Forever broken. It also breaks your relationship with others, where there was supposed to be trust and love and encouragement and mutual affection, now there's shame, there's guilt, there's fear, and it breaks our relationships with one another. The Bible also says that sin broke the world itself. The ground was cursed because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Where work was designed to be desirable, now it's thorns and thistles. Where you're reaching to do what God's called you to do, you get poked, you get stuck. The world is clearly broken, okay? It's also broken society and culture completely messed up, completely backwards. You don't need to spend any time at all watching the news to see how messed up and broken culture is. So the question is, if the fall broke all those things, what is the church's role? What is your role? What is my role in this broken world? What is it? How do we interact with the world? How do we go into a world that is so broken and so controlled by sin 
and sometimes even by the enemy himself, how do we go into that world and make a difference without becoming like the world? Some churches, some Christians just decide they're going to build a wall and completely separate themselves from the world. The Bible says, be separate from the world. It says that, and that's, for some people, that's their life verse. But the Bible also says, be salt, be light, be ambassadors. It says, beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news to those who need to hear it. So both are true. If you find yourself behind a wall, not interacting with your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends who don't know Jesus, you've only read part of what Christ has called you to be. Your heart is devoted to him, but your life is given for seeking and saving the lost, just like Jesus. So how do we respond to a broken world? We display the love of Jesus. We share the words of Jesus. We clearly communicate the gospel in our circles of influence. So when we talked about spiritual warfare and us getting involved in it, it's the same conclusion of how we deal with a broken world. It's about taking the love of Christ, the good news of what he's done for us on our behalf. Not that we deserved it, but that he freely chose to do it. And we take that message to those who are broken, who are hurting, who are stuck in their sin and they don't know any better. There's no hope. And you and I have been given the message that gives hope to those people who so desperately need it. If you were at the members meeting, we drew a big box up here. And at the top, we talked about our vision, where we think God's taking us for the next 15 to 20 years. So when we say for the gospel, for the city, we call that our vision. But what does it look like? How's that played out? How's it turned into something measurable? And what we're starting to say, what we're starting to think God is calling us to is that he would use us in churches who are committed to the gospel to actually saturate the city with the gospel. What does that mean? We're praying that God would start raising up people like you, people like me, people throughout our church who not only know the gospel, but share the gospel. They live like everyday missionaries. They take God's word to his broken world and to broken people who so desperately need to hear it. So to saturate the city with the gospel means that we're giving each and every person an attractive opportunity to hear, to understand, and to receive the good news of Jesus. We're starting to commit ourselves to that. How do we as a church begin to do that? It starts by individuals saying, in my circle of influence, with the people that God's brought into my life, I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to invite them into my home. I'm going to invite them to my church. I'm going to start telling them about how God's working in my life. I'm going to start sharing with them the good news that somebody one time shared with me. I just heard a stat today by a guy named Ed Stetzer. He said that 90% of younger people say they're willing to have a conversation about Christianity with a friend. Nine out of 10 people are willing to have a conversation about Christianity. We keep saying the younger generation doesn't want to have anything to do with God. Nine out of 10 of them said that they would be willing to sit down with a friend and talk about Christianity. The question is, will we as Christians sit down with them and talk to them? Nine out of 10. I say, I pray that we go for it. That if you, have a vision, if you have a vision board in your life, one of the things that starts coming to the top of your board about why you're still here on planet Earth, why you're in Charleston, why you get out of bed every morning, is so that God would begin using you to saturate this city by saturating your circle of influences, your circle of acquaintances, acquaintances your circle of friends with the gospel. 
when you start doing it, I start doing it, you start doing it, and you start doing it, we start moving in a direction where we can actually see a city saturated with the gospel. So what's the result of studying creation? Worship. We worship him. We stand in awe of our wonderful creator. And we take the message of what he's done for us and share it with other people. What happens? More worship. There are more people in Charleston worshiping the creator God because they now know what it means to have a relationship with him. So our response to creation, our response to the fall is sharing Jesus, making much of him so that more celebrate, praise, and worship our God, our creator. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you are here with us. We stand in awe of you. You've created all things, visible and invisible. We got to the point over and over again tonight where we just don't even understand what we're talking about. We don't have conclusions. We don't have clear understandings of so many of the things that you've made and how you work them together in the beauty and the wisdom of your own design. So simply, we stand back and we are in awe. Lord, we also see a broken world and a broken creation that's been destroyed by sin. And Jesus, we ask that you would move in and through this church, in and through each one of us to begin making known your love to those who are hurting in this city, in our friendships, where we work, in our neighborhoods, in the schools where we attend. Lord, use us to make much of yourself. Use angels to glorify yourself and use your people to glorify yourself. Make much of yourself. Make your name known here in Charleston through your people. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all for coming.